Hello, welcome, and would you look at this mess? I'm your host, Kate, and the purpose of this podcast is to trace, explore, and celebrate the unconventionality that lives within all of us. Hey, hi, welcome back. Come on in. First and foremost, um, yeah, I've been sick, so I got that uh, sexy old man voice happening. Very Phoebe Buffet of me. I will not be singing for you. Um, so you're going to have to just deal with that. It's not coronavirus, thankfully. It's just some other, I don't know, virus that's been going around. So anyway, that's me right now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> second of all, had I realized that there was going to be some very interesting, very troubling um, developments happening in the world of abortion in the United States last week. I probably would have talked about this uh, then, but um, yeah, I didn't realize that there was the now famous Texas abortion law going into place. I think it's called the fetal heartbeat act or something like that. Actually, I can probably look it up for you right now. Um, well, it's called, it's called Bill S8. Um, and let me see now, what does it say? Uh, yeah. So this act shall be known as the Texas heartbeat act. Um, I actually have the law, um, up open in front of me. I've been reading through it. I've been taking in some other content, trying to understand what's going on with this, um, <clears throat> because this is a rather unique situation, and it's very interesting to me, intriguing, uh, again, tr quite troubling. There is a lot happening with this law, and I think that there is a lot of confusion, and so we're going to try to work through some of that. And and I want to say, too, before I get going, um, I feel like I've made it reasonably clear throughout, you know, re recording this podcast for almost a year now, that I am not a sensationalist. I don't prescribe to over-exaggerating things or, you know, taking things to an extreme that is not realistic, things like that. And that's kind of what I'm seeing right now on social media. And it irks me because while I wholeheartedly think that this needs to be fought, I think that this is completely unconstitutional and unjust. That's my personal opinion. Um, it doesn't help anybody to focus on things that are just not real and not realistic and, and, um, to misrepresent things, right? So we want to be as factual as we possibly can when we're talking about this. And I will try to do that as much as I can. And as always, if I say something that is incorrect or not accurate, um, please feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to correct myself. I try to be as, as accurate and factual as I can when I am laying down the facts. So, okay. Um, this is something that I, I thought was of interest, particularly for something that I mentioned in the last episode very briefly, you know, when I was talking to Taryn and I said to her, I'm so glad that you had access to that abortion, that those services, that type of health care, that you were able to do that for yourself. And so this is a situation where that is a really important statement because as it stands now, this law in Texas is prohibiting women from having, or sorry, prohibiting folks who are pregnant um, as of the time of detecting what is determined to be a fetal heartbeat, which is, as a lot of media outlets have pointed out, is misleading because it's actually not at this stage of development. There's no heart yet. It's the um, you know, the beginning stages of what will be a heart. So there is activity there, but it is not a fetal heartbeat. Let's be clear. Okay. Again, we're going to be as factual as we can. Um, anyway, so there's a misleading title of the, of the act and, and even actually within the, the law, there is some, um, there, there's a strike through. I was just reading, um, in the language. So they changed the language so that it said, um, you know, when a woman is consenting to have an abortion, she has to go through all of these different um, 
steps, right? So she has to consent to the fact that, you know, she's been given pamphlets and she's been told about the risks and all of this stuff. And so one of the things that it says is, is it used to say, I understand that my uh, fetus is blah, 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 but they changed the word fetus. They, stro- they, they literally struck it out and it now it says unborn child. And so you can see from the way that the law is put together and a lot of the restrictions that are in place, it's a lot of manipulation and it's a lot of emotional manipulation, which is what Taryn and I also talked about last week as well, what your body is actually trying to do too. When you are pregnant, you're carrying a child and your body is trying to convince you to keep that child, despite the fact that it may not be what's best for you, for your life, for your family, etc. And so this law, and again, a lot of um, other things that were already in place before the law took effect, because things like being given pamphlets, being made to wait 24 hours before you could have an abortion, um, being reminded of uh, what gestational age your fetus is at, having to do an ultrasound where they show you the image of that fetus, those types of things are all kinds of psychological manipulation to make you more sympathetic to carrying that unborn, um, non-viable fetus. So anyway, (laughs) um, essentially the law says that you cannot have an abortion once that fetal activity has been, or heart activity has been detected, which is on average around six weeks of gestation, which, um, you know, I'm just, I'm reiterating what a lot of people have been saying at this point, just to kind of get the context right. But, um, Basically, at that stage, the majority of women are not aware that they are pregnant by that point. It's very uncommon for women to know that they're pregnant before, um, you know, eight-ish weeks. And even to the point that you don't even normally go see your doctor until you're about 8, 10, 12 weeks along. That's when a typical first ultrasound is done. That's when your typical um, first appointments are um, are starting. That's when your appointments are starting with your doctor. I can remember when I got pregnant with Emmeline and I was so antsy and so kind of surprised that I wasn't able to make an appointment with my doctor to talk about this pregnancy or to, to, you know, start doing all this stuff until I was like seven or eight weeks or something. And I knew I was pregnant fairly early. Actually, I knew I was pregnant fairly early with both of my, my babies. Bobby was this is a sidestep. Bobby was a weird one. And I find this to be so fascinating because I actually knew I was pregnant with him pretty much from the day it happened because I had this taste in my mouth and I, I just kind of knew. And so the funny thing is, oh man, sorry, this is a really weird sidestep, but, um, I, I felt this metallic taste in my mouth and I thought, oh, that's weird. And I immediately thought, well, maybe I'm pregnant because I'll tell you that when when the stuff went down, I kind of was like, that was that that felt very impregnating. <laughs> and uh, so I, I the next day I had this metallic taste in my mouth and I was like, hmm, I wonder if I'm pregnant or maybe I have a dental issue. So I went and I made an appointment with the dentist and um, they, you know, they did an oral examination and all this. And then um, then they said, we want to do some x-rays, but we need you to fill out paperwork. And one of the questions in the paperwork was, are you pregnant or possibly pregnant? And I was like, hmm, you know, I might be pregnant. I'm like, it's super early. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even be able to test yet, but I may be. And they were like, okay, well, we won't do the x-rays until you can confirm that you're not pregnant. And so I waited a few weeks and took a test and then I was pregnant. So I was like, I guess that was why I, that stuff was happening with my mouth and it did go away eventually. Anyway, holy crap. So that is extremely rare. And even then, I couldn't find out based on a pregnancy test that I was pregnant until I was probably four and a half or five weeks, which means that if I had wanted to have an abortion, I would have had to get through the process of seeing my doctor to, you know, get the ultrasound, to go through the 24-hour waiting period, all that stuff within like a five to seven day period. And even then, I mean, the six-week mark of like, oh, there's fetal activity at this, this um, or fetal heartbeat activity at X time, that's variable. It depends on the pregnancy. So <clears throat> this is really constricting for a lot of people. Because again, I felt like I was pregnant earlier on, but I didn't have any way to medically determine that I was pregnant until several weeks later. So this leaves like an extremely narrow window of possibility of being able to abort an unwanted pregnancy. 
Um, and of course, you know, there's, there's a whole conversation about, uh, the constitutionality of all of this, right? Women reserve the right to make this decision for themselves according to, um, what has been determined to be constitutional, uh, through cases like Roe versus Wade and, uh, what was it, um, Oh, whole whole women's health versus Casey. I think that's what the, the other case was. There's a couple of them that sort of changed the way that um, abortion is is uh, handled in this in the United States. So <clears throat> the so there's a couple of problems that have come up with this law, and um, I want to dive into that sort of first. Uh, because I know that there's a lot of outrage and a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of confusion and stuff, again, because it's a sort of unique situation. So normally when these types of laws are passed, the power to enforce the law is given to the state so that it becomes a criminal. Um, in the states, they have two, um, two arms of, of uh, law. Or two branches, so they have they have criminal law and they have civil law. And criminal uh, legal cases are pursued by the state, and civil ones are pursued by individuals, um, citizens. And <clears throat> so again, normally uh, these types of laws, and I don't even know, like there's not really very many. I I, I I haven't looked it up, but I don't know that there are any other laws that are in place in the United States where. Um, the power is not given to the state to enforce the law. So um, I think that's, that's, it's a one of a, one of a kind in that sense. Um, so instead of giving the power to the state to enforce the law, the power is being given to private citizens to enforce it. And so they are being compelled and encouraged to take not women uh, who are, seeking or having abortions, but the providers of abortion um, and anyone who is associated with having given a woman an abortion. So that could be the nurses who work in the facilities, that could be the Uber driver that took her to the clinic, and anybody actually also included in this, this provision is anybody who had the intent to help a woman, whether they did or not, and also, if someone helped a woman to get an abortion unwittingly, they didn't know that that was what the end result was going to be, they can still be sued for that. So there's a wide, wide range of possibilities of people that you can sue. And it's not limited to anyone who is personally affected by this, because obviously the only person who is personally affected by this is the woman. But anyway, um, perfect strangers are able to mount a case against um, a clinic or a physician. Actually, the other thing too is like uh, anyone who may have provided funding to a clinic that offers abortions or provide an abortion for someone after the cutoff time. Like again, it just it's so far reaching, and so um, <laughs> this is incredibly unique in the sense that um, there is like so normally when a law like this is put into place uh the you know attorney general or or whomever uh would or i'm trying to think of how this works but basically let's 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 break it down into ways that i can understand it so basically there's a person or an entity that can be uh this can be brought up into the courts through right because it's the state who is um enforcing the law so I'm going to say maybe it's the attorney general, the state attorney general that is like overseeing the enforcement of this law. So, so, you know, Planned Parenthood would take that guy to, um, to court, or you would have a similar case of like Roe versus Wade, where, um, it's a class action lawsuit against the state that you could say this is unconstitutional. The problem in this case is that <clears throat> there is no overarching entity to take the, the uh, to to bring to court, so they actually have to wait until somebody files a lawsuit under this law to try to fight it in court and take it to the Supreme Court to have them decide on the constitutionality. And this is something that has come up too because um, there was a emergency injunction request filed. 
And so basically someone was saying, you know, this is unconstitutional. We can't have this law go into place. It's going to cause, un like, going to cause harm, etc. And uh, basically, you know, we we have the, on the Supreme Court right now, it's, a, it's essentially uh, th three, or no, yeah, three to six liberal conservative um, judges. And as much as justices on the Supreme Court are supposed to, you know, be impartial. We can't ignore personal individual bias. And the other thing that's really important about the Supreme Court is that people, there's two ways of reading the Constitution. There is the, um, the living document type of uh, interpretation, which tends to lean more the liberal way, meaning people can make in inferences and infer things into the Constitution based on what it says. And then there are the, the folks who uh, treat it as, um, I'm trying to think of what the term is, uh, like as, as a literal reading of, of reality, right? So if something is not explicitly stated within the Constitution, then they tend to say that it's not, that you can't rule it as being unconstitutional, etc. And that tends to be more of the conservative folks that, that lean that way. So in this case, uh, right now in the United States, there's a three, three to six liberal conservative um, uh, justice split. And so you have more justices who are inclined to read it as a literal document and, um, and are more like, uh, yeah. So, and then the, the um, remaining justices are the ones who are willing to say and did say in their dissents um, that they felt that this was blatantly unconstitutional and should not have been put in place because it will cause harm. Because basically, what the what the um, five justices said that voted against it. Um, so, and this is the other thing that there's uh, Justice Roberts. I think is his name. He he's kind of the wild card right now. He tends to he he doesn't fall necessarily on one side or the other consistently on issues. So he fell to the um, the the more liberal side of this one. But anyway, so that's why there is a, actually a six to three split. He tends to go more, he's, he's, he's viewed as more conservative, but he doesn't always vote that way. Anyway, so the five uh, justices that, that did vote against the injunction basically said that, um, you know, the law itself doesn't present... Um, any uh, harm to women because it's predicated, the law itself is, is predicated on somebody pursuing a lawsuit, which they say there's no telling whether or not somebody ever will pursue this lawsuit. So you never know. But, and so this is why like this, this, <laughs> this law is so crafty and, and unique and interesting because it's not the direct application of the law that causes harm. It's not directly unconstitutional necessarily. Um, well, I think that it is, but but there but it's not necessarily super evident because uh, again, you're putting it in the hands of private citizens to to enforce this law, and so that's up to people whether or not they they want to do that. Um, <clears throat> but it's. It's the fear of being brought to court that causes the ripple effect that is happening now, which is that clinics are closing down. They're not offering services because they can't afford to be tied up in court fighting civil suits and also be practicing at their capacity anyway at the same time. So the net effect of the law is prohibitive, essentially across the board for abortions, right? It essentially creates a, a, a ban on abortions, a, a total, a total ban. And so when you take how the, the conservative justices view the constitution, and also the other thing to point out here is that they haven't ruled on the constitutionality of the law itself. That was not part of their decision. Their decision was based on the fact that they felt there wasn't enough evidence to show uh, that there was, you know, uh, enough harm being caused by this. 
that there was a few different items that basically needed to be proven by the the claimants in this case. And they said uh, there was not enough evidence provided. The other thing is that they haven't, they didn't have any briefings. They didn't have any um, oral arguments. None of that. It's called a shadow docket. Basically, it just means that they're being presented with the case. They have like two days to look it over and there's no, there's no, nobody's arguing the cases for them, right? So they felt that the process was not done properly, that they didn't have the time or the uh, resources available to them to make the decision about the constitutionality of the, um, or not even the constitutionality, but of the the potential harm that is going to be caused by this. And, you know, like it's, any anybody kind of can see that it is causing harm, but again, these are literalists, and um, in its literal text, it doesn't directly cause any harm. It's only the indirect harm that is caused. So um, it's you can see from how they read things and how they interpret things, and they do this, again, across the board typically, um, how they come to that conclusion. You may not like it, and you may not agree with it, but that is the reality, that that's how they see it, and you can understand that that's how they see it. At least I can. I can understand that. So now the problem is that because um, they didn't put an injunction in place, the law has gone into effect. It does create a precedent. And so there is the very good possibility that other states will follow suit and continue to build um, laws along this line. And, um, and again, you know, eventually it will come back to the Supreme Court from the constitutional standpoint, right? It'll be, it'll eventually be ruled on about the constitutionality of, um, of the, the law itself. And who knows how that will go. I think I'm trying to remember, like I was reading some of the statements and I think there was a statement at least by, by even the conservative justices that there were constitutional questions within the law. They weren't, outright saying it seems constitutional to us, it was, well, you didn't prove the thing that you were trying to prove in this particular instance, this very narrow perspective of what you're trying to prove, and so we can't stop it from going into place. And so the harm that it, that causes is obviously immediate, and it is large, but they're not saying that it's going to stand forever. Um, some of the things that I want to highlight about this law, though, that are of particular interest to me um, are some of the the provisions in place. So one of the things that I find interesting and, you know, I'm trying to read a legal, essentially legal document and I'm not a lawyer. Uh, so I may be misinterpreting this to some extent, but I believe that I'm not. Um, basically, this this law says that if a particular part of the law, the way that it's written, is deemed to essentially be unconstitutional or that it needs it can be overturned, they've made provisions that you can remove specifically that thing and everything else stays in force. And so I kind of get the sense that this law... I mean, I don't know necessarily how the how the Supreme Court will go about it or how things are going to play out in like it's just it's very, very um, up in the air and remains to be seen about how things are going to play out. But it feels to me like this law is going to be have have to be picked apart piece by piece. At least that's how they've designed it so that it can't just be necessarily overturned in one fell swoop, that it has to be taken apart by bit, bit by bit. Um, I don't, again, I don't know if realistically that's how it will end up working, but they've at least put provisions in place that would prevent the law from just being wholly overturned. So that if you found flaw with one particular provision, they say that it has severability, which means it can be severed from the remaining elements of this law, and you can remove just that part, and then everything else stays in effect. So yeah, so again, I feel like they're, they're making it so that it's gonna be challenging. I mean, it's gonna be challenging in a lot of ways to overturn this particular law. But 
that seems to me like a pretty big point. <clears throat> the other thing that um, that I think should be clarified and needs to be sort of discussed as well as the fact that there is um, this $10,000 reward that is being offered to folks who, who successfully um, litigate one of these cases um, in the civil courts. And so this is one of those areas where I've, I've found people are sensationalizing it to an extent that it doesn't need to be because the reality is that people will get essentially what they're what they're trying to do is to say you don't have to worry about spending your own money litigating this case um, if you present a strong case and you win we'll cover the cost for you that's essentially what this is doing right because it is a concern for lots of people I'm sure to bring a case to court and foot the bill for it, right? When because again, because this is such a unique situation where they're not personally um, injured, they're not personally affected by what's happened, but they're moralistically driven to seek uh, justice, as it were. And so um, that's where the the that provision comes from is essentially saying we see that this is a difficult financial undertaking for you. We'll reward you reward quote unquote for um, undertaking it successfully, and so that also might act as a bit of a, a buffer for people. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's no there's no telling what kind of people are reading this and like don't have an idea of what exactly it's asking like people can make bad decisions and stuff so i expect that there will, will be people who will bring cases forward that they don't have a hope of winning <laughs> and don't realize that they're not just going to get paid 10 grand to just show up um so that might happen but but i expect that there will be people who are going to be very careful in how they approach this um and so two things that i want to say about that are that um, first, the practicality of of bringing such a case to court is again undetermined. It remains to be seen how to practically try this kind of a case because, um, as you may know, there is the um, oh, it's HIPAA. HIPAA is the act that exists within the states. It's a federal act, so it can't be overridden by any state laws. Um, essentially protecting people's privacy medically. So a medical professional can't disclose your information to, um, you know, anybody, uh, whether it be a relative, a third party, any, no, no one is allowed without your consent. They're not allowed to know your medical information. And so when you think about the practicality of somebody mounting a case like this, I mean, you're, like, it's difficult to conceptualize how someone will go about proving that this happened um, without somebody just blatantly saying, yeah, I had an abortion after the six week or yeah, six week mark, right? Like, I at least can't really imagine how someone is going to be able to prove evidence with, with real hard evidence and documentation that this happened without having access to medical records. So... That's where I'm like, I don't know, the, the, I, I don't really see how that's, how that's going to work. But then that also brings me to this other thought that I have is that I don't know necessarily that this law was put in place for the purpose of actually litigating anybody. I think it's already serving its purpose, which was to instill enough fear in providers that they just stop offering the service, right? It's again, it's that it's the sneakiness, the cleverness of <clears throat> going after something, doing something in a way that um, it just it the the actual intended or the, the the at face value the effect of it is irrelevant, and the actual effect of it is that it prevents people from offering abortions when they normally would because they just don't want to be open to the liability of doing it, and so at the end of the day the result is actually that result is is almost better than the result of litigating someone after the fact. Because technically you can take someone to court if they were um, deemed to have uh, been 
I don't know, they were going to provide an abortion for someone or they were going to help someone access or pay for an abortion. But again, I'm not totally sure how you would be able to like litigate that quickly enough through the court system to prevent it from ever having happened. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know the logistics of all of that. But so basically you're, you're looking at a lot of cases where someone would be litigated after the fact. And so if you really want to prevent someone from having abortions, then this is the kind of law that, that helps that cause because, well, okay, sorry, theoretically, in theory, that helps that cause because it prevents that service from ever being offered because of the, the potential repercussions. However, and so this is an interesting thing. I was reading an article about, um, you know, this Im the implementation of this law and some of the statements made by, you know, proponents of it and stuff. And they're like, this is a victorious moment. And this is such a, a you know, a great time. And, and if this, they said, if this law goes into place, we'll save fi 50 because they, okay, sorry, I should backtrack a little bit based on what data exist it's not probably great data but um the data that does ex that do exist basically it says that around 56,600 um abortions were completed in 2019 and so this person was saying that if sorry I'm sorry I have to <laughs> get all the facts out here before I carry on. So 56,000 completed, approximately 85% of those are believed to have been post six week mark. So there's a certain percentage that are done early enough. Um, but basically the 85 to I've seen anywhere from 85 to 92% are done after six weeks. So this person was saying that in the first year, they would be saving 50,000 children by forcing women to have the babies that they conceive um, or that they are impregnated with. Sorry, forcing people with uterus uteruses, because I know that not all people with uteruses are women. Sorry, I'm working on that. Um, anyway, forcing those people to have their babies. And the flaw in that thinking is that we know that even when women when when abortions are banned they still happen women oh my god people people still have abortions even when it's banned so the reality of how many lives quote unquote they're saving of children quote unquote again is actually probably nowhere near that because the abortions are still going to happen you're just putting a lot of people at risk particularly um underprivileged people who don't have the money or the means, um, who tend to be racialized and marginalized in many other ways already, those people are most at risk for death and injury because they're still going to have an abortion. It's just going to be the back alley style, the unsafe type. And so I almost wish that, well, no, it doesn't matter because the logic Logic and numbers and statistics don't actually mean anything to most of these people. Um, they don't really look to those things, which is a fundamental disconnect that exists that I think a lot of people are unwilling to uh, really explore all that deeply um, because a lot of the, the policies like this that come out are rooted in the religious, you know, fundamentalist faith. And so science and medicine and religion uh, don't really aren't compatible in that way. And so it just, it, this also bothers me when people start relying on like the scientific nature of everything. And they're like, da, 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 trying to argue against something with someone who is a fundamentalist. And, you know, so they don't, they're not speaking in the same language as you. You're actually telling them something that is not compatible with the language they're speaking with the worldview that they hold. And so we do need to come to a place where we can talk more, like less like we're talking to a wall on both sides, right? People who believe that um, a fetus is a child, a baby at conception, don't care what the science says about when a child or a fetus is actually viable. They don't care. That doesn't matter to them because that does not align with their view. And similarly, we don't care what their view is about about the this this life beginning at conception 
because that's not what the science says. And so we've got to find a way to have these conversations constructively where we're actually hearing each other, right? We have to really listen and hear what people are saying and how they feel in order to move forward because there's a lot of just screaming back and forth. And I understand because it's a hot issue. It is very emotional. It is ripe with with emotion and feeling and rage on both sides because, again, you have this very fundamental difference in the view of... um, These people really do believe that you're killing someone, that you're murdering a human being. And we have to acknowledge that, okay? That is a real thing that they feel. You can't dismiss that. We we really feel on our side, because I will say that I am staunchly pro-choice, that that's not the reality, that you're not you're not that that person doesn't actually exist. And so my feeling is, okay, so I saw this tweet that was shared through Instagram. And I'm going to, again, create some context around this statement and say that I purposely follow people on my social media who do not align with my views. I purposely follow people who um, are like very evangelical, are very pro-Trump, are very, um, you know, pro-life, whatever, however you want to phrase that. Because I feel like it's important to understand how people actually view things and where they're really coming from and not just what the media boils it down to for me and tells me that and then drives the hate within my heart for those people. So I try to follow people who are authentically authentically not aligned with my views because I do find that it creates a more of a um, holistic perspective for me. I know that for a lot of people, that is a very difficult thing to do. And it has been very difficult lately with a lot of the issues that are coming up specifically around abortion, because these people feel very strongly about these things and they have very strong ways of saying them. So for example, this woman that I follow who is like so well articulated. And one of the reasons why I really like following her is because she's really, really good at speaking her mind and saying how she feels in a well-rounded way. And it all makes sense to me, right? Like, I'm like, I get it, girl. I get it. I don't agree with it, but I get it. (laughs) So anyway, she posted this tweet and then shared it to her Instagram page. And it said, I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically what it said. Um, Do you believe that not that all humans deserve to not be murdered? My answer is yes. If you are for abortion, for legalized abortion, then your answer is no. That's what it boils down to. The abortion debate is over. And I was like, ah, that bothers me. <laughs> because again, we're, we fundamentally disagree that a fetus or an embryo is a human. Okay. I fundamentally disagree with you on that because I will say My feeling is that if we're talking about a person who already exists, who has a full life, who will be um, disproportionately affected by this in probably a lot of negative ways, um, versus uh, a clump of cells or a, a, a thing that doesn't quite exist yet, couldn't possibly survive outside of the womb... Um, yeah, I'm taking the person who already exists. Like, fine, you got me, <laughs> right? So I almost wanted to comment on her post and just be like, yeah, you know, you won the morality Olympics. I'm murdering babies, if that's how you want to put it. But I'm, I'm not, I'm not engaging in that right now. I just that was where my mind went. I was like, yeah, you're right, because we fundamentally disagree about when life begins. You think it begins at conception. I think it begins not even necessarily at viability, but from the moment that child takes its first breath, that's when life begins. Because unfortunately, things happen all the way through pregnancy that causes uh, fetal death. And so then I'm, I'm like, yeah, well, it, it, they're not alive until they're actually alive. <laughs> Um, and that's just my feeling. And that's how I I conceptualize these things. But I understand that that's not how she feels. And that's not how a lot of people feel. And so I'm trying to personally come to a place where I can really understand what it is that they're trying to do and accomplish. Um, and, you know, 
I I understand that again that I feel like this law these these types of laws are really unconstitutional, and they're um, they're not putting the the control of one's body and bodily autonomy etc in the hands of the people who birth children. Um, I believe all of that wholeheartedly, but I also really believe that people on the left, people who are pro-choice, are not approaching this this issue in a constructive way, largely. I think we're really operating from a place of rage and um, <clears throat> and just not being open enough to having a real conversation. And so we need to get to a place where we can actually talk about this stuff constructively before we'll ever get to a place that we can all come together on it. I mean, maybe we never can, but we're not getting anywhere either by just being fueled by rage. Um, again, this is where a lot of that misinformation and the misrepresentation of things comes into play. And so that's where the holes all are, right? When I, I get annoyed with this because there are some legitimate, strong arguments to be made, but we won't get really to know those <laughs> if we're only ever seeing this sensational stuff. And this comes down to also getting a lot of your news from social media. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when a lot of what you're learning about things is coming from your Instagram account. That's not helpful, um, especially with something like this, because there are a lot, there's a lot of nuance here that needs to be clarified. And so even just, I was just Googling about it on my computer before I started uh, learning about this stuff. And just reading actual articles about it was helpful and finding the actual law um, and reading what it actually says was helpful in understanding it better and, and realizing where there are discrepancies between what I've seen on social media and what the reality of the situation is. Okay, the last thing I want to discuss is kind of a little off, off um, track here, but I do want to bring up the fact that there have been studies that investigate what happens with the children when they are born um, after mothers have requested abortions and have been denied. So there actually is what's called the Prague study. Um, it was based in the 19, let me look, um, started in like the 1960s or maybe the mid 70s. Let's see, um, 1961 to 63. Um, and basically what the, what the researcher did was they, they collected data um, from the commission of something or other. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, you know what? Let me read you the abstract, okay? Let's, let's do this. Okay. A long-held belief among mental health practitioners is that being born unwanted carries a risk of negative psychosocial development and poor mental health in adulthood. The Prague study was designed to test this hypothesis. It followed the development and mental well-being of 220 children, now adults, born in 1961 through 1963 in Prague to women twice denied abortion for the same unwanted pregnancy. The children were individually pair-matched at age 9, with 220 children born from accepted pregnancies with no abortion had, uh, when no abortion had been requested. This article brings together in one place the theoretical assumptions and hypotheses, the criteria for selecting the study participants, and major findings from five follow-up waves conducted among the children around the ages of 9, 14 to 16, 21 to 23, 28 to 31, and 32 to 35 years plus a sub-study of married unwanted pregnancy subjects and accepted pregnancy controls at age 26 to 28. To control for potentially confounding factors in data interpretation, all siblings of all subjects were included in the last two waves. It was found that differences in psychosocial development widened over time but lessened at around age 30. <clears throat> all the differences consistently disfavored the unwanted pregnancy subjects, especially only children, no siblings. They became psychiatric patients, especially inpatients, more frequently than, accepted, than the accepted pregnancy controls, and also more often than their siblings. The overall findings suggest that in the aggregate, denial of abortion for unwanted pregnancy entails an increased risk for negative psychosocial development and mental well-being in adulthood. Um, I remember learning about this when I was in university, and it was um, of interest to me because that seems rather intuitive. When you think about um, 
how so especially now as a mom I think about how difficult it is to raise children to have children to pay for children um there's so much that comes along with that and and so the other thing that I'll mention is in this study there were they I think they said that there was something closer to like 600 women um in that year who had been twice denied abortions but some of them ended up obtaining legal abortions elsewhere some of them just somehow never gave birth. Some of them spontaneously aborted, meaning they had miscarriages. Um, and then there was a group of other women that had, you know, adopted out their babies and things like that. So there were certainly <clears throat> instances where women were still able to either have an abortion or not ultimately raise those children. But the ones who did, um, they did see that there was, you know, a, a more of a psychosocial developmental disparity there with other children. Um, because again, like I was getting at, when when children are wanted and and in like, you know, we try to have these babies, it's very difficult to raise them. And this is something that you find the opposite kind of um, type of mom guilt that comes up for women who have had IVF or have had surrogacies and things where they end up with a baby <clears throat> or a child, and then they feel guilty because sometimes they don't love the way that that child behaves, or the child goes through some really rough stages, or mothers go through rough stages, and they think, I should just be purely grateful for this because this is what I wanted. But that's not the reality. The reality is that parenthood is one of the hardest gigs out there, perhaps the hardest. And so when you think about people having babies when they really didn't want them, that is intuitive to me that it would be that much more difficult to raise that child in a loving, healthy environment. And so that's a primary concern for a lot of people. And I understand, again, this is going beyond the kind of discussion of um, the the fundamental ideologies that, that are happening here, right? Because, you know, people who tend to be um, <clears throat> pro-life also they they tend to promote things like adoption. They tend to promote things like um, actually. So one of the other sorry to, again sidestep. One of the things that's included in this law, women have to be informed of before they have an abortion is um, services and resources available that offer contraception. Because the thing is, a lot of people focus on um, things that women have to be told before they have an abortion that is manipulative. And this is one of those things where it's actually quite helpful um, that they know how to try to prevent pregnancies in the future. Anyway, that's a thing. But yeah, people who, who tend to be um, pro-life do actually invest time and money in trying to raise the babies who are born of from women um, that they didn't want them. So I'm not going to discount that because I do know that that's a thing, right? People put their their money into the charities and they put their time into the volunteering. That's that's part of a, what a lot of people do. So because um, there's often, again, this like what I consider to be a lame argument of like, you're pro-birth, not pro-life, because once that baby is born, you don't give a shit about it, and, you know, you, you'd be happy if they went off and, like, or, like, you, you know, like, you they just don't care, and I don't think that that is patently true. I think there are certain people who don't care. I think that there are certain people who care a lot, and there's people in the middle, but people generally do care about the children once they're born, um, <clears throat> so it's sort of a, a false statement to say, you don't care once they're born. Um, certainly society at large doesn't care, but the individuals who are pro-life, I don't think you can even make that statement about them because you don't know them. And so again, I try to like minimize this level of attacking people on an individual level because you actually don't really probably know personally a lot of people who are pro-life. At least I don't. And so I can't say what I think about that. And I don't know what people do in their private lives. So it's just, eh, it's one of those things like we can just can we just stop saying that? <laughs> Can we stop using those kinds of arguments that aren't getting us anywhere? We need to focus on the things that are actually really important and um, accurate and can be held up <clears throat> with rigor. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, this probably comes as, as, as no surprise to anyone who really believes that people people shouldn't be forced to have babies when they don't want to. But, but I thought it was an interesting thing, and I will put a link to that study for you in the notes so you can read it if you are interested in it as well. 
again, I'm not going to encourage you to take that and start running towards the pro-lifers and saying, hey, look, if someone has a baby that they don't want, it's going to end badly for everybody because those people are probably just going to say something like they should be accessing more of the resources available to them or we can help them to raise that baby and blah, blah, blah. So they have an answer for everything. So just take that for what it what it's worth, right? Um, okay, and the very last thing that I want to say is that um, I wanted to mention a couple of resources that I find have found to be really helpful in putting all of this together and sort of figuring this stuff out. So um, number one is a woman that I follow on Instagram. Her handle is Sharon Says So. She is an, a, a retired government teacher, and she is amazing. She actually has a workshop. She does these like virtual workshops now. Um, and she has one dedicated to the conversation of abortion. And I think that that's a really helpful tool to, um, to sort of get the context for what abortion laws and the landscape around abortion, has, what it's looked like throughout history in the United States and how it looks today, or at least up until, you know, basically this, this law was put in place. Um, so that's something that you could look into. I think I paid like 10 bucks or something for it. So there is a cost. So there's that. Um, but she also goes on stories and things on Instagram and we'll talk about these things too. And I think she has a highlight saved currently dealing with this particular law. So you can learn a little bit through her Instagram as well. Um, and the other thing that I, I found helpful was listening to Pantsuit Politics, um, their episode that they released this past week. I forget what the name of it was, but it was it was dealing with this abortion law as well. And they give like, a, again, a very sort of um, found well-founded practical analysis of the situation versus just a lot of the sensationalizing that's been going on on social media. So those are two uh, resources that I think would be really helpful. And I'm going to leave a couple of the, the resources that I was looking at online today that I also found helpful, the, um, some articles, and I'll put the, the link for the, the law in there if you want to read it, all that stuff. So anyway, um, that's what I got to say about this for now. I I hope that this has explained some things and um, sort of offered some more perspectives. I will come back and talk about it maybe again sometime. If you have questions or things you want clarified, feel free to reach out. I can always do an episode answering questions or, you know, dealing with some of the comments that will come up. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I've got. <laughs> Um, again, I hope that it's it's helpful or that maybe some things are, are clearer and um, we can start to really have some productive conversations around this issue because it is important and people are suffering right now as a result of some really awful policy. So anyway, thank you for joining me as always. Um, you can reach me by any of my contact stuff. I'll put it in the show notes as well. And I hope that you have a good one and I will see you in the next one.